All right, you guys can turn to Psalm 113. That's where we'll be this morning. It's all about worship. We're going to talk about this subject of worship in detail. Now, we don't know who wrote Psalm 113. It doesn't tell us. What we know is that it was written as a song to be sung during Jewish holidays. So when the Jews would gather multiple times a year for their big festivals, their celebrations, they would sing certain psalms, and this was one of them. They would sing it together with one another. And so let's jump in. Let's just read the first few verses of this community song. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Now, let's start with the first line, praise the Lord. In English, that's three words. In Hebrew, it's actually just one. It's the compound word hallelujah. Now, that's a really churchy word. That's the kind of word you hear in songs. It's the kind of word that Christian-y people say when something's going really well, hallelujah. But do you actually know what it means? Let me walk you through this really significant Hebrew word. So it's a compound word, meaning that what the Jews did is they clumped together two separate words to make this new word, hallelujah. And it's combining the verb halal with the name yah. And so let me kind of unpack that. We'll start with that name yah, that shorthand or an abbreviation for Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. So the God of the Bible, he can be called God, but he also has a name, and it's Yahweh. And he revealed that name in the book of Exodus. The story goes that Moses was standing before the burning bush, and God spoke to Moses and said, go to Egypt and deliver my people. And Moses asked, well, who shall I say sent me? Because all the nations have gods that they worship. Who who exactly are you, God? And he said, Yahweh. So that, that's his personal name, Yahweh is sending you. But it's an unusual name, it's kind of funny. Um, it's not like our names, it's not like Steve or Joe. It's not like the, the proper names of other ancient gods like Zeus or Melech or Baal, which were, were just names, like our names. No, there was no proper name that could categorize God that could label him. And so God chose a very unusual name. Yahweh is actually the equative verb in Hebrew, which means the I am verb. It's is. What's Yahweh's name? Is. That's it. I am. There's no Steve. There's no Joe that can contain me. It's just I am. And it's a very powerful word theologically because it's the ever existent verb. I am. Not I was. Not I will be. I am. Who sent you? I am. I am in contrast to all other nations' gods, which aren't. It's a really powerful name, I am. And it's combined with this Hebrew verb halal. And and halal means to praise or to boast. It's how you express admiration for somebody. Usually in the Bible, it's how you express admiration to God. So it's praising or boasting about God. It's talking to other people about how great God is, how good God is. So praise would include your thanks for what God has done for you. It would include your awe uh, or, or admiration or, or just your humility before how wonderful God is. In the Old Testament, the, the Jews would express this, this boast about God in a variety of ways. We tend to think about singing, they certainly sang, but they also wrote boasts about God and they spoke boasts about God and they even danced songs of dance about the greatness of God. So in the Old Testament, the Jews used a variety of ways to boast about how great God is. So hallelujah, it is to boast about Yahweh. 
to declare how great your God, Yahweh, God of the Bible is. In English, it's basically what we mean by the word worship. So that's really what we're talking about. Now, worship is another one of those really Christian-y words, like hallelujah, come to church, worship. What is worship? We tend to think about the thing we did a few minutes ago as John Mark was you know, playing his guitar. We were singing together. And that, that is worship, but that's actually only one small part of what the Bible means by worship. And you can see that in verse 3. Look again at verse 3. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So God is to be worshipped from the rising of the sun to its setting. Well, they weren't sitting in church all day from the rising of the sun to its setting. The point is, worship is meant to be 24-7. Worship is for every part of your life. It's not just singing. And so I need to give you a broad definition of the term that fits from sunup to sundown. So what the Bible means by worship is it means declaring the goodness and greatness of God to him, to ourselves, or to other people. Declaring the goodness and greatness of God. Declaring is meant to be a very broad word in my definition because you can declare the goodness and greatness of God in many ways. It includes speech, it includes singing, it includes writing, it includes dancing. There's lots of different ways to declare how good and how great God is to God, to yourself, and to one another. It can include thoughts, it can include speech, it can include writing, it can include artwork. Lots of different things you can do fit into worship. And so let me give you some practical examples of what worship would include. This is by no means an exhaustive list. Just just a few ideas. Let's say that you're sitting down to give thanks before a meal. If you mean it, if you're not just saying the words, well, that is worship when you say to God, thank you for this. Let's say you go to work later this week and you're sitting at your desk and you think of a friend who lost his job and all of a sudden you feel thankful that you still get a paycheck and you whisper to God, thank you for this job. That was worship, what you just did there. When you get together with friends and you tell them about something good God has done in your life, that's worship. When you're driving in your car and you see a sunset and you turn off the radio for a moment and you just think about how awesome God is, that's worship. When you write down in your journal about a time that God has answered your prayer in a concrete way, that's worship. This fall, let's say maybe around late October, early November, when it cools down and you are at an Aggie football game and you are having a wonderful time because the Aggies are winning as they always do. And (laughs) between plays, it all of a sudden dawns on you that you are incredibly lucky because here you are watching a football game when for most of human history, people were just trying to not die. And here you are enjoying all of this and you think to God, wow, God, you blessed me. That was worship. So worship is really broad. It's anything that we think or say or write or do that declares how good and how great God is to ourselves, to God, or to one another. Worship is meant to be a constant part of our lives. And so God has given us Psalm 113 by someone, don't know who wrote it, someone God used to write this psalm that's designed to help us worship God 24-7. Psalm 113 is very practical. It's meant to, to help you worship by giving you a couple things. The first half of the psalm is going to give you the prerequisites that are required for worshiping God. The second half of the psalm is going to give you inspiration to motivate you to worship. So let's jump right in. Let's start with the prerequisites to worship. So what are prereqs? Well, if you're a student or were a student, you know. Prereqs are the stuff you got to do before you can do the thing you want to do. 
So you want to take a higher level math class for some insane reason. You have to take the lower level math classes first. If you want to drive a car, you have to go get a driver's license first. It's non-negotiable. That has to be done. So there are prereqs to biblical worship, meaning that your worship must be preceded by things that are true. You got to take care of these things, two things in particular. Now, let's be clear. You can come to church on Sunday morning and sing the songs that are on the overhead without doing these prerequisites. No one's going to stop you from singing the words, but they're just going to be noise and hot air for you if you haven't taken care of the prerequisites. For your worship to count, for it to honor God, for it to bless you, these prerequisites must be true first. Okay, you don't want to waste your time. You want your worship to count. So these two prereqs must be taken care of first. So the first prerequisite in this psalm to biblical worship is submission. And you see that in the first half of the first verse. Look again, verse one. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. I've always been a little bothered by the fact that the NASB translates this word servants because then you think of like, BBC shows where the servants are doing stuff. It's not that. In Hebrew, this is slave. It's just simply a slave. Praise the Lord, O slaves of the Lord. Now, that's a weird place to begin a a song. Why are we talking about being slaves of the Lord? Because the psalmist wants us to remember, you are. We are all slaves of the Lord. Why? Because he's the creator and we're the creation. We literally belong to him. That's part of the reason we sang that song this morning, the air in my lungs belong. Because your lungs actually belong to God. If there was a, a VIN number on them, it would show these are, those are from God. He gave those to you. Everything in you belongs to God. And so the psalmist is reminding us, as we come before God in worship, we must do it on our knees. We must do it in humility, acknowledging that God is our master who owns us, who directs us, who is our king. So you have to approach God in humility, in submission for your worship to count it. You can't approach him in pride. And that's why we see so often throughout scripture that God's people are actually commanded to literally approach God on their knees. So you see it in Psalm 95, verse 6, very famous verse. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Bow down and kneel there are not metaphorical. It's not about the attitude of your heart. They're they're quite literal. Get on your knees. Bow down before God. God had the Hebrew people bow down and kneel before him. Why? I don't know if you've ever tried it, but if you get down on your knees and then you go all the way down on your face, you do not feel prideful. That's, that's the design of that position, the, the design, of, you know, this position of absolute submissiveness. You can't feel prideful when you're bowing down on your face. And so the posture was designed to move the Israelites to submit before God. And you see that of all the great men and women in, of scripture. It is fascinating to see when they worship, they don't stand like we do. They don't sit in the chairs like we used to. They're almost always on their knees or on their faces. And the Reason for that is because they're reminding themselves and saying to one another and showing our worship is out of submission and humility or it doesn't count. So this is a good opportunity for us to talk a little bit about the subject of posture during worship. We're a Bible church in a very academic town. So we're not usually very expressive in worship. Few people are and the rest of us just look at them and think, what is going on over there? (laughs) So why are we not more expressive in our worship? I think part of it, and I'm, I'm pointing at myself in this, I think part of it is that we misunderstand the purpose of our bodies in worship. 
I think for a lot of us, we think about our bodies as, as a way to express how we feel. So if, wow, if I feel overcome by the worship song, then I'll lift my hands. Or if I feel humbled and crushed before God, then I'll get on my knees to express how I feel. But if I'm not feeling that, then I don't want to do it because I'd be a hypocrite. Well, no, that's actually not true. Your body can express your emotions, but your body is actually designed to direct your emotions. Your body, think of it this way, your body is a tool God gave you, a tool that can direct your heart and your mind. So you use your body to direct your mind and heart to think the right things and feel the right things. You don't wait for the feelings. Your body is actually how you generate the right feelings. So when the Israelites were called to bow, right here, bow and let us kneel before the Lord our God our maker, uh, David never said, if you're feeling it. No, it doesn't matter whether you feel or not. You do it. And maybe the feelings will come. That's great if they do, but that's irrelevant. Your body is how you direct your mind to think the right things about how great God is and how small you are and how you direct your heart to love God rather than self. So this semester, over the next few months, I'm going to be challenging you multiple times, many times, to actually practice using your body as a tool in worship and doing things with your body physically to direct your mind and your heart. So John Mark and I will be challenging you at times. If there's a song where we're talking about how wonderful and great God is and how impressed, we're going to actually direct you to to lift your hands up. And if you don't feel it, we we don't care because that's not what it's about. It's about doing it because it inspires you to think God is so far above me. And then there'll be other songs where we'll talk about how we're turning our lives over to God and we'll direct you to put your hands out open face. And and whether you feel it or not doesn't matter. You're acting it out. You are actually physically using your body to act out what you're trying to say. And there'll be other songs where we're submitting to God and we're recognizing how big and great he is and we'll challenge you to actually get on your knees and bow before God in this room together because you're using your body to direct your heart and your mind to think the right things and feel the right things about God. So I'll warn you ahead of time, we are going to do that today. At the end of the service, we're going to take communion together, and then we're going to respond in worship, and we're going to actually direct you to get on your knees in the room, and then at the end of that portion, to get up and raise your hands. And again, it doesn't matter whether you feel that way or not. We're doing it as a tool to direct our hearts and the minds the right way towards God. Okay, so so posture, this bowing before God, it's a tool God has given us to direct our hearts and minds to submit before God because submission is required in worship. You cannot come before God in pride. You must come before him in humility. Now, ultimately, it's not about the posture itself. It's not sufficient just to kneel. What really matters is the reality of your submission. So you are submitting your life fully to God. That's what God is looking for. He wants you to be walking before him in obedience. And and the rule of thumb here is that you cannot worship God and rebel against God at the same time. That's not possible. It's like oil and water that can't mix. So to illustrate, when I was in elementary school, I really only had one kid who I would call an enemy. You know, kids have friends and have guys they're not as close with. But there was one kid, only one, 
who was truly mean to me, truly evil to me. And the ironic thing is he was really evil to my face. He would say nice things to me in my presence, but then behind my back, he would be really cruel. And one day, quite literally, he was cruel behind my back. So we were out at recess. This was sixth grade, I think. And everybody's heading inside. And he calls me over to the side of the building, just him. And I go over there. I'm like, what, what's going on? And he says something really nice about me. One of the nicest things that he had ever said about me. I can't remember what it was because of what he did next. As I turned to walk away, he grabbed me by the shoulders and kneed me in the kidney. And so I fell to the ground, knocked the breath out of me. And I learned that day that it doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you do. (laughs) Because when your actions betray someone, it shows that the words were never real. Well, that's exactly how we treat God. When we say nice things about God on Sunday morning, yet choose intentionally to walk in rebellion the rest of the week. Now, I'm not arguing for perfection. None of us are going to perfectly obey God. If you had to perfectly obey, then let's just all go home. None of our worship counts. That's not how it works. What matters is that you are trying to obey God. You are turning every part of your life over to him. When you fail, you're confessing it. You're not excusing it. That's what God is looking for. But if instead you come and say nice things about God on Sunday morning and then the rest of the week you you have some area of sin in your life that you excuse because everyone's doing it and you deserve it and who really cares? And so you excuse this area of sin that you won't deal with. Well, that invalidates your worship on Sunday. So you really are just wasting your time singing songs on Sunday morning if you have chosen to accept sin in your life. Again, it's not looking for perfection. It means that you're willing to fight. That's what God wants to know. Are you willing to fight the sin in your life? If you are, then your worship counts. Okay, so the first prerequisite for God honoring genuine worship is submission. The second prerequisite for God honoring worship is knowledge. Look with me again at verses one through three. You may have noticed that there is a phrase repeated multiple times, three times in fact, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Name of the Lord. Um, That's an unusual phrase in English, the name of the Lord, isn't it, Lord? (laughs) Well, no. Name in the ancient world isn't like name is today. My name is Blake. The name Blake doesn't tell you anything about me. In the ancient world, that wasn't true. Your name was a shorthand description of everything you were and everything you did. So name of the Lord means everything God is and everything God has done. To praise the name of the Lord means you praise all of his attributes, you praise all of his actions, you declare how good he is. But here's the catch. If you were going to praise the name of the Lord, which is all that God is and all that God has done, then you must know who God is and what God has done. Worship requires knowledge. You cannot worship what you do not know. And so we need to know things about God. Now, that doesn't mean know everything, because none of us are ever going to know everything about God, but it means that you know the basics. You know a sufficient amount about the one true God that you can say true things about him. So if you are relatively new to this whole church thing, this whole Christianity thing, let me encourage you to learn some things about God. He's really awesome. You're going to like what you learn. And so I'll point you to a few resources. The first is the Bible itself. That's your primary text to go to. I like the book of John. If you've not read the Bible yet, read the book of John. It's in the New Testament. You'll learn a lot about God and about his son, Jesus, that will help empower your worship. If you're ready to go a little deeper theologically, we have a Bible study on our website called Essentials. Just go to Resources Bible Studies Essentials. It's free. You can download it. 
Look through the essentials packet, especially the first few lessons. You'll learn a lot about God. And then third, maybe if you've already done the essentials thing, there's a guy who wrote about 50, 60 years ago named A.W. Tozer. And he wrote some really good things about God. And one of them in particular, my favorite of his books, is The Knowledge of the Holy. The Knowledge of the Holy. It's not long. Just go to Amazon, Knowledge of the Holy. Probably a few bucks is all it costs. And the wonderful thing about it is that it's got lots of chapters and each chapter isn't real long. So you can just do like a chapter a day um, and, and it will teach you about who your God is and it will inspire you to really like your God and really want to worship him and declare how good he is. So A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, great resource. Okay, so for our worship not to be a waste of time, we need to make sure we're submitting to God and that we know things about God. Biblical worship is submissive and knowledgeable. Now let's talk about the second half of the psalm. Here's the problem we have when it comes to worship. We don't always feel like doing it. We don't always feel or see how great and good God is. And that's because we live in a world that's full of pain and distraction. So a lot of our lives gets consumed by the pain and suffering and struggle of living in this world. And we lose sight of God. And, and even when we're not feeling pain and struggle, we get distracted by all the entertainment and all the shiny new things that this world offers. And we lose sight of how wonderful God is. And so we're told, hey, it's time to worship God. And we don't feel it. And God knew we would struggle with that. We knew that we would, he knew that we would lose sight of his goodness and greatness in this distracting world. And so he's given us the second half of this psalm, which is meant to inspire us. And that's, that's where the psalm goes next. It gives us inspiration that motivates our worship. And you can think of verses four through nine, if you want to write a word next to him, you can just write the word kindling. It's, it's kindling for a fire. So if you want to start a fire, you can't just throw a big log of oak and like light a match and boom, there it goes. I mean, unless you soak it with a lot of gasoline, it's not going to light. You need kindling. And so the rest of this psalm is that kindling that you break up and put on the fire and light first and it begins to warm up the fire pit and then you can put the oak on it. The idea of the rest of this psalm is it's kindling for your heart. It warms you. It stirs up your affections and your thoughts about God so that it can inflame your worship and drive you to declare how good God is. So let's look at this inspiration that God gives us for worship. Let's start in verses four through five. The Lord, that is Yahweh, is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? This is about God's greatness. When it says that he is enthroned on high, that he is above the heavens, the idea is, is twofold. First of all, enthroned on high, that's a picture of authority, and it's about the fact that God's authority is unchallenged. So God is in authority, absolute sovereign mastery of every nation and every organization and every person on this planet. There's nothing that happens on earth that happens outside of God allowing it to happen. He is the king of kings no matter who is in the Oval Office, no matter who is in the direction of any nation. He is king of kings. Okay, so he is always in sovereign mastery of earth. But, but the psalmist goes beyond that. It's not just that God is high above the nations. He's high above the heavens, meaning that God is, is bigger and more powerful and more majestic than all of the heavens, which in Hebrew, that doesn't mean like spiritual heaven. It means the universe. So this universe, the point is, the whole universe altogether is small compared to God. 
That's a big thing to say. It's bigger when you actually put numbers to it. I put some numbers to it a few weeks ago, and I walked away realizing that it's just numbers, and it boggles the mind, and we can't fathom it. And so here's a little illustration for you. I put together a few years ago. I took some pictures. Here they are. So let's say you go out to the backyard, and you're looking at the night sky. So the sun has set, and you look up, and it's a cloudless night, and you see a lot of stars there. It's really bright. This is, this is not College Station. <laughs> you don't see much in the light. But let's say you go out. You're in Colorado, something like that, and you look up, and let's say that you focus on one part of the sky. So let's just take that tiny little square I put up there, because the whole's too much. Let's just say you focus on that square, and when I did that square and I looked in there, I can see four pricks of light in that square. So, okay, four stars. That's Wow, that's big. A lot of stars in one little rectangle, but then somebody loans you the Hubble telescope because you're really powerful and influential, and they say, hey, have fun with it, and so you point the Hubble telescope at that square, and then you look inside, and what you see is 10,000 galaxies in that one square composed of five quadrillion stars. It wasn't four pricks of light. It was five with all those zeros behind it, and yet God is infinitely bigger. And the whole point of that is to show you God is bigger than anything you can imagine. He is more powerful and majestic and glorious and bright than anything you can fathom. His greatness exceeds your wildest imagination. So we start with the greatness of God, that there is nothing that can compare to his greatness. But that's not all. Let's read the next few verses. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people, he makes a barren woman abide in the house. As a joyful mother of children, praise the Lord. Now it turns. So for two verses, we're focused on the greatness of God. Now we're focused on the compassion of God. Not only is he great beyond our wildest imagination, he's compassionate beyond our wildest imagination. And God chooses to focus in in a couple ways to help us understand his compassion. So it says that he humbles himself. That's an odd word to use for someone as great as God. He humbles himself and he stoops down. So he comes down from heaven and he stoops down to see and care for actual people. Okay, so God stoops down and he cares for people and there's two kinds of people that the psalmist mentions, two particularly vulnerable people. The first is the poor, talks about those who are in the ash heap. And it's important for us to understand what it means to be in the ash heap or in the dust. Um, He's talking about a garbage dump. In the ancient world, garbage dumps weren't like our garbage dumps. In the ancient world, a garbage dump took all of your trash plus everything we flushed down the toilets. It all went to the same place. It was a valley, a depression in the land. So all trash and all human excrement ends up in this one place, and people live there. The absolute poorest of the poor lived in that refuse. Why? Well, first of all, for warmth. They would light it on fire, and and it would provide warmth. And in Israel, in the higher altitudes, it got very cold at night. And so the destitute, homeless poor would live in the filth so that they could be warmed by the fire of it. They would also live there for food because they had no food. So they would eat whatever they could find in the refuse pile. That's horrible. It's, it's utterly unimaginable. It is important to understand the poor of the ancient world were not like most poor people in America. Most poor people in America at least have some government assistance, some charitable help. They had absolutely none. They, they were as filthy, as destitute, as disease-ridden as you can imagine. They were basically walking corpses. And the point of the psalmist is to say that when God bows down, when he humbles himself and comes to be with us, he doesn't come to be so much with us 
as with them who are down here. The absolute poorest of the poor, the most destitute, the most disease-ridden, the most sick, the most hopeless. He comes and walks with them and delivers them. He lifts them up out of that refuse and delivers them to, to be with the princes. He raises them up to be honored. So the poor is our first group that that we're told God has incredible compassion. He loves to lift up and deliver the poor. The second group is the barren, those who are infertile, particularly infertile women. Now, infertility is a curse at all times. It is always hard. But in the ancient world, it was even harder. It was literally a curse. Because in the ancient world, a woman's security and worth were 100% based on having children. There was no social security. Your future was provided by your children. In addition, there was no employment outside of the home. There was nothing but bearing children for you as a woman in the ancient world. So if you were a woman and did not have children, you had no security for the future and you had no worth in the eyes of society. And yet that is who the psalmist says God cares about. He stoops down to surround those who are barren and infertile and in the eyes of society have no worth and no value and no hope and he delivers them. He provides children. He brings joy into their lives. Now, that's really fun to say. It does beg a question. So why is this still going on? Why are there still so many poor in this world? Why are there still so many infertile women in this world? And the answer is because the story's not finished yet. God is still writing the story, and the greatest chapter of all has yet to be written. When Jesus comes back, All of this will be taken care of. The humble, the oppressed of the earth will be lifted up. And so as we wait for that day when God fulfills all of this, we wait in faith because we know God is doing this and has done it a lot in the past. There are so many stories in the Bible of God delivering the poor, the needy, and the barren. Women whom God miraculously gave a child to, like like Abraham's wife Sarai, who had a child at 90 years old. We know that God has done that. We know that God can do that. We know that God will do that. He is coming back and he will plead the cause of the oppressed and he will lift up the poor and needy and he will heal the sick and the infertile and he will fix all things. And so we wait in hope of that. And what the psalmist is trying to do is stir up within us all of God Because God is great and God is compassionate. And each of those alone would be sufficient to inspire worship. That God is great and that God is compassionate. But the key is to notice that he's both. And and that's the wonderful thing about this psalm. Is that it puts two things that seem like polar opposites together. My favorite part of the psalm is actually the combination of the last half of verse 5 with the first half of verse 6. So it's just two lines I've underlined says, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold? It's two opposites juxtaposed together to describe your God. And what, what the psalmist is doing is saying, here we have the person who has all authority and wealth and power and majesty, and yet he is the same one who humbles himself to the point that he is walking with people covered in waste and disease and death. And what I think is fun is to think for a moment about whether you would ever see that of a human being in this planet. That powerful, rich human beings would go walk among those who are needy? Is the president going to do that? Is a celebrity going to do that? Go walk in a third world refuse pile and embrace people covered in filth and disease, not for a photo op, but every minute of every day because he or she loves to do it? No human would do that, but God does. 
Because that's the kind of God that you have. He did not have to pick between being great and being compassionate. He is both perfectly joined together, transcendent above the universe, and yet absolutely present in the worst possible situations on this planet. He is both infinitely great and infinitely compassionate. This is one of multiple places in the Bible that I call glorious paradoxes, where God presents two things that seem opposite together, and he does it to show us that he defies all our expectations and is greater and better than we can possibly imagine. And it's that that inspires worship in me more than anything else. When I think about the fact that God is both infinitely great and infinitely compassionate, and no human being would ever do that, but God is so much better than us. Okay, so, so these facts about God, this knowledge about God's greatness and goodness, it, it's like kindling for, for our heart. It, it warms us and inspires us to declare God's goodness and greatness. And that's what we're going to do together as we take communion. So as the men go back to prepare communion, we're going to celebrate God. And communion, you may have never thought of this. Um, If you're new to the church or to Christianity, communion might seem a little weird to you. We take a tiny little cracker thing and a little bit of grape juice because we're a Bible church and don't do wine. And so we, we take these two things and we nibble on the cracker and we drink the juice and you think, what is that? Communion is a tool. Just like posture is in worship, communion is a tool, it's an action. You literally reach out your hands and you pass a plate and you take bread off the plate and you take a cup off the plate and you lift them to your lips and you chew and you drink. And the point of all that, it's a tool to put your heart and mind in the right place. You are using your body to remind your mind and your heart that Jesus actually really died for you. The bread, it's not about the bread, it's about the fact that Jesus gave his physical body in your place. He experienced your beatings, your torture, your death for you so that you wouldn't have to. The cup, it's a reminder that Jesus spilled out his blood for you, not because he had to, but because he wanted to so that you could have eternal life as a free gift. And so communion, as we take this together, what I'm going to challenge you to do is spend this time as you actually reach your hands out and grab the plate and pass it and take the bread and take the cup. I want you to use those actions to remind yourself of what is actually true. I want you to think about the fact that, that the Son of God, the creator of all of those billions of galaxies, actually chose to give his body for you and his blood for you so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. So men, as you will come forward, please use this time to say thank you to Jesus. That's worship. You're just remembering what he did and you're saying thank you. That he was willing to give himself up for us. So let's spend this time in thanks. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning we do remember what you went through on our behalf. We remember that you are great, that you are the creator, that all things came into existence through you, that they hold together by you. 
We remember that you are the eternal son of God, infinitely powerful, infinitely sovereign. But we remember that you and your infinite power and sovereignty chose to become one of us, to live among us in all the evil and pain and filth of this world. And yet you did not grow tired of us. You did not grow angry at us. Instead, you loved us so much that you took all of our pain and all of our shame and all of our sin upon yourself. And you died in our place to pay the penalty that our sins deserved and then you rose from the dead to make life available to us as a free gift we praise you lord jesus for your greatness and your compassion we praise you that you did not feel you had to choose between them that you are both infinitely great and infinitely compassionate we celebrate you heavenly father that you are yahweh you are the i am there is no other god there never will be there is only you we praise you for your greatness and your compassion we praise that you, that you would want to be a father to us. We thank you for all and that you are, and we celebrate you. In the name of your son, for his glory and majesty, we pray all these things. Amen. Well, now we're going to practice what we learned today. We're going to worship God, and in particular, we're going to begin our worship by submitting ourselves to him, by bowing before him. And then we will stand in awe of him and celebrate how great he is. So let me invite you and I'm going to join you. I'd ask you to kneel wherever you are at your chair or you can come out to the aisle. If you're not able to kneel, if that's too hard for you, then please stay in your seat. But just bow as low as you can as John Mark leads us in worship. <laughs> 